chapter of Genesis. Come on up, Asher. Okay, so this is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, vegetation seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the, the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let, them be light, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God, God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the field, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw that, that all he had made was good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day.
So the chapter that Asher just read, especially when you connect it to the next following 10, are, well, you could make the argument that they are some of the most controversial documents that span human history. For thousands and thousands of years, people have been grappling with these texts, and they've been asking, why was it written? What does it all mean? How are we supposed to understand it? And those questions were front and center for those who first heard these stories. And these stories continue to provoke questions and seeking and searching and continue to challenge people today, whether you consider yourself a believer or a skeptic or a spiritual seeker. Now, as you can imagine, after 3,000 years, there have been lots of debates and lots of theorizing, and they, there have been issues layered on top of issues, nested inside of other issues. And so some of us step into this long momentum of debates and discussions, trying to sort through what has been going on and how to make sense of things. But because there are so many complex layers to these to to the topics that Genesis 1 through 11 brings up, it's really important for us to move into these chapters with clarity because getting sidetracked is so, so easy. It's really important that we figure out how to move into and through these chapters with clarity, with understanding, and allow these stories to personally impact us at the level of the individual, and within our marriages and families and communities. That's what I'm hoping to do through this series. I want to provide a theological overview of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis so that your understanding of the Bible, just generally speaking, makes more sense. You've kind of got new hooks to hold information and knowledge on and say, oh, that makes sense. That's really, really helpful. But I also want to teach through this section of Scripture so that your own understanding of your own story makes sense. And that together we can use these stories to become better, wiser, stronger, more faithful followers of Jesus. Because that's the person who all these chapters are going to keep pushing us towards, is Jesus. Depending on your church background or your association with the book of Genesis, um, Jesus might be a figure that's very detached from the stories of Genesis 1 through 11. And yet, I want to show us what it means to read those chapters in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and his ministry. And therefore, allow these chapters to maybe speak in a really fresh way about what does it mean to follow Jesus as modern people using one of the most ancient controversial texts as our guide. The more we understand Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the deeper our appreciation of who God is, that's going to increase our, the deeper appreciation of uh, who we are, not just conceptually, but on a very personal level will be, and the deeper our understanding of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ in this world uh, will be as well. Those things are going to come into focus in a new way. When Jesus says, follow me to his disciples and therefore to us today, 
understanding Genesis 1 through 11 is going to really help us put flesh on that calling, which for many people can, can end up being very abstract. Today what I want to do, however, before we launch right into Genesis chapter 1, is I want to start with something called a prolegomena. How many people have heard of the word of prolegomena before? Hands up. Anybody? Anybody? Maybe? Yeah? No? You've heard the word prologue in a book, right? It comes from prolegomena. Prolegomena means the things that what must first be said, or the things to be said in advance. And usually what happens is, when you're entering into a large theological or philosophical work that has a long history, there's a prolegomena or a prologue before you get into the story so that you understand what you're stepping into. And the first few chapters or the first few words even don't uh, sidetrack you. So this was done to great artistic effect in Lord of the Rings, right? Where the Fellowship of the Rings starts with this 10-minute prologue backstory of Sauron so that you can enter into the current story with Frodo with a bit of context. Prolegomena is a really, really important, especially in a cluttered situation where we bring a lot of assumptions to the text and there's a whole history of interpretation and wrestling and debates that we are maybe somewhat aware of this part, but not this part over here. And what a prolegomena allows you to do is to kind of say, okay, before you just move into this, let's kind of set up some guardrails and guideposts so that you don't get lost right away and then flip the table and say, this is too complex or I can't handle this or I don't know what's going on, forget it. Close Genesis, move on to maybe a more accessible book of the Bible. Now Genesis is a very old, it's a very complex text. And we might want to believe that you can just open up your Bible, Genesis, start at the beginning, right? Bible's a book, I guess, so we'll just start at the beginning. That is not always the wisest thing to do because these, this text, and specifically these first 11 chapters, are really, um, it's really important for us to have a sense of where they come from and how they're constructed and the questions that they are asking us to ask about them. These are really provocative, really interesting, very strange at points, puzzling texts. And sometimes, as entire chunks of passages, they are not, um, it's not very easy for us just to open them, read them, and kind of get the point. They do demand some work. And so what I want to do is move through these chapters in a way that allows all of us to say, oh, I kind of see what's going on here. Okay, maybe this is a chapter or this is a topic or this was a series of texts that I've never really known what to do with. And now I understand. And it's not just a head knowledge, it actually increases my worshipful awe, uh, in awe sense of who God is and gives me a deeper appreciation for the Bible. As we move through these first 11 chapters, there's probably two major traps that we want to avoid. The first trap is to move into these chapters with kind of a Sunday school simplicity. The second trap is moving through these chapters with the assumption that they require a PhD level of knowledge in order to understand. Now the Sunday school simplicity thing tends to get leveraged a lot by skeptics of the Bible, right? They look at 
the, the, the stories at face value in Genesis 1 through 11, and, and they just scoff at it, right? How could you ever believe this? If your whole faith is founded on these documents, these just bear evidence of the fact that these were uneducated, pre-scientific, Bronze Age, uh, nomads out in the desert, stories of talking snakes and angels having sex with people and creating some kind of superhuman hybrids and a worldwide flood and animals of the earth getting on this ark. Like it just strikes people as preposterous. And so we can just, uh, some people might be tempted to just dismiss these chapters out of hand because they are so clearly simplistic and therefore they don't, they aren't worthy of our consideration or grappling with in any significant way. Spoiler alert. If you understand Genesis chapters 1 through 11, you will never again dismiss them as irrelevant or as simplistic. It it will not happen. The other trap is believing that you need PhD level of complexity, right? In this trap, what we think is that, of course, Genesis 1 to 11, and specifically the first three chapters, are very relevant, but their relevance is because they are directly tied to issues regarding, in broad strokes, science and faith, creation, evolution. And so um, what, what these chapters demand of us is an ability to kind of hang with those having the discussion around how does science and scientism and creation and different understandings of how creation might have been wrought by God and all the scientific and philosophical and theological complexities. Those are really important discussions. But what we can feel like is if if I'm not conversant with those things, then there's not really any point of me studying this stuff because I'm not going to come to an understanding. And that's certainly the way I feel. I've done a lot of reading um, of just introductory documents and books and articles on some of these debates and I am by no means of high intelligence. I am maybe slightly above average. But after a few hours of reading this stuff, my eyes and my brain can feel like it's glazing over. And I have a hard time getting into it because I realize these people could be writing this stuff and I don't know what's going on. They could be talking about quirks and quirks and all these different theories and I could be like, okay, because I don't have the requisite scientific base to be able to say, hmm, I think they're trying to pull a fast one over on me. I don't know what's going on. And so again, if you think that the significance of Genesis 1 to 11 is tied to this expertise of knowledge that you need to have in the scientific realm, or even a high degree of philosophical theology, then you're just gonna step away from this because you're gonna say, this is just not me. I don't have time to do a deep dive into this. I don't have time to go back to school and get a few degrees so that I can understand the nuances of molecular biology or biogenesis or Um, any of the other elements that sometimes get brought into these discussions. But I want to encourage you to consider the fact that for thousands of years, these texts have been poured over by the greatest minds in human history. And as a result, there have been astonishingly powerful insights into who God is, who we are, how we're called to live, that have been offered as a result And if you consider that for a moment, that it's going to caution you from dismissing these first 11 chapters as simply just child's play. These are just children's stories. Simplified understandings of the way the universe is that was um, made by people who just didn't really know any better. And for most of these stories' existence, every discussion of the book of Genesis 
happened without reference to science and evolution. And yet there were still astonishing insights being offered as a result. And so clearly this book doesn't require you to have a PhD in either theology or science in order to access it and to access its treasures. So let that be an encouragement to you to not be intimidated by the book nor to outright dismiss it because it seems strangely simplistic to you. So what is this book? What is the book of Genesis? Well, I don't know if you recall, sometimes I talk about how if you summarize the plot line of the Bible, you can do it in three, maybe four words, creation, fall, redemption. Some people add a glorification to that in terms of the consummation of all things, a new heaven and a new earth when Jesus returns. How many of you have heard of that before? Creation, fall, redemption. Please put up your hand because I've taught it a few times. Thank you. Okay, so we got creation, fall, redemption. That's the plot line of the Bible, right? But if you were going to split the Bible into A part, B part, the way you would split it is Genesis 1 to 11 is part A, and Genesis 12 for the rest of the Bible is B. And so if you don't have a strong handle on what's going on in verses chapters 1 through 11, it makes it more difficult to place the significance and importance of God, God's call to Abraham in Genesis 12 all the way through Israel's history, Jesus, the church. That doesn't mean that you can't understand some of the significance of those things, but almost everything that's happening for the rest of the Bible after Genesis 12 has some kind of callback to something that was happening in the first 11 chapters. So in studying these chapters, this will actually help you to understand the overall Bible just much, much better. It will make the Old Testament much less intimidating. It will make things that Jesus says and does uh, pregnant with new meaning. You're just gonna see it and be like, wow, that is, how did I miss this? And so it's really important to understand and have a basic grasp of these first 11 chapters because the rest of the Bible, how God addresses the issues that come out of these first 11 chapters, that's what the rest of the Bible is about. So growing in these chapters are, is only going to enhance and deepen your own faith and your own understanding. They say that for every sermon, I don't do it every sermon, but certainly for every series, you should probably answer the question, okay, this is all great, Jeff, but like really just cut to the chase. Like, why should I care? Like, why should I invest the amount of hours that I would invest by showing up here or listening to the podcast or doing a little bit of extra reading? Like, why really should I care? And that's a really important question. And I would answer that differently if you were someone who is a Christian versus someone who says, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a believer yet, that's totally fine. But to either and to all people, I would say, man, you should absolutely care about these documents. First of all, just from a, um, just take God, faith out of the equation. You could, I would make the argument that there is no document that has been more influential in terms of human history outside of the Gospels, probably, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, than probably Genesis, the book of Genesis, first 11 chapters, maybe even the first three. They come up in philosophy, poetry, um, all kinds of cultural expressions all the time. And so understanding these chapters are just going to be important if you want to be an informed human being and a cultured human being. But for everyone else, these chapters push 
some of the most important questions that you have to grapple with as a human being right to the forefront. Questions like, where did we come from? Why are we here? What are we? Are we alone in the universe? What does it mean to be human? Why does it hurt to be human? Why can humans in one turn create and build and cooperate and then just as rapidly use and abuse one another for our own ends? What is wrong with us? Why do human societies rise and flourish and then begin to rot at the core? And where is God in all of this? What kind of God is he in all of this? Can the world be fixed? Who's going to do the fixing? And when? Those are really good, important questions. I would argue you can't have a coherent, stable worldview as a human being without coming to some kind of conclusions, even if they're soft conclusions, around those questions. And see, that's another thing that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are really skilled in doing. They won't just give you really important answers. They're going to teach you the kinds of questions that you should be asking and make sure that your life is not dominated by secondary or tertiary questions of importance. It will put the most important questions of life right in front of you and confront you with them and challenge you to answer them. And it, and it will make a claim that it is presenting you with the true answers of the world's true story of reality and therefore of your life. And any document that claims to do that, I think you have to reckon with. I think you have to either really look at it and say, no, I, I don't buy this, or is there a power, is there a source, is there an inspiration behind these truths? Now, seeking answers, getting the questions right so we can move into these answers and explore them well, that only comes as we slowly learn to understand the ancient worldview in its context, right? There's 3,000 years at least that separate us from uh, those who first heard these stories and first received them, right? Um, we talk about a generation gap all the time, right? Where even now with, with memes in our household. Uh, I remember Marin a few years ago taught on memes and just this new form of communication that is a blend of um, visual symbols with humor. And it's really, really popular if you're probably under the age of 35. And yet people over the age of 35 are kind of like, I've maybe seen this, but I'm not really into like meme culture. I don't really get it, whatever. And so someone who's quite young can be communicating in a way that has a lot of presumed meaning for their context, and someone just one generation above them can be observing what's happening and being like, I don't understand why these people are laughing. This just seems like nonsense. I, I just don't get it. And that's one generation. So now we're going back 3,000 years. We're creating a gap of not just generationally, but culturally, language-wise. Now that gap isn't so big that we say, oh, we could never know what any of this means and we throw up our hands because we have really wise, smart uh, people who study these things for a living and who um, teach us how to understand ancient texts. But we just need to be aware that if we just open up, especially some of the uh, texts early in Genesis and move right into them without having a bit of a constellation of a few principles in mind 
again, it's going to either come across as very, very confusing to us because we don't know what we're looking for um, or just outright discouraging because it's, we're not going to be able to bridge what this says with, I don't really get how this is supposed to impact my life or, I don't know, I wouldn't write like this, I don't talk like this. Yeah, this is just not for me. So let me run through. I'm going to review these as we move through, especially the early chapters in Genesis, a few times. But I want to just lay them out really quickly here. And as I do, just think about how some of these principles of how ancient people generally, not just eventually the Israelites who come to receive these stories firsthand, but the cultures around them, how they thought about reality. So this is a very, very high-level sketch of ancient Near Eastern worldview, which is a fancy way of saying people who long ago lived in this area of the world, how did they, generally speaking, understand and envision their universe, reality? And as we move through these, just hold a little, a few of the ideas that, um, or you might um, make some connections between what I'm saying and what Asher read coming out of the first chapter in Genesis. I might help, I might help connect the dots in parts. But um, here we go. This is going to be really quick. I I am going to expand on these later. So this isn't meant to be a full presentation. Number one, ancient people presumed a divine human codependence, meaning humans and the gods. We'll get to the pantheon of gods in a second, but humans and the gods needed each other. So people cared for the gods at temples, through tithes and offerings and all kinds of different uh, sacrifices. And in turn, gods took care of people. So the presumption of ancient people was that even if there were gods, the gods needed them to render certain services. And then in return, the god would bless people directly. But um, the idea that there was there could be a god or gods that didn't need human support in order to exist doesn't really ex- isn't a reality on the landscape for ancient people. Number two, the presence of God in sacred space. You look at the writings of ancient peoples, people in the ancient world highly desired for their particular God or the gods to take up residence among them. That was the point of temples or shrines. There were these little bridges that connected the everyday world with the world of the gods. And if the temple or the shrine was pure enough, if it was ritualistically pure, then what you could hope for is that there, would, there could, they could be a point of mediation between the human and the divine so that you could care for the gods well and then they would care for you well. So temples were these really important access points where if you think of, and it's... Um, a little bit of a false dichotomy, let's say, but if you think of uh, material reality and supernatural reality or heaven and earth, materi- uh, temples were the places where they, those kind of overlapped. Those were these very, very sacred spaces where the presence of God or the gods could come close. Number three, this won't come as a surprise to many people, there were all kinds of gods. There was a pantheon of gods and a hierarchy of gods because each god had attributes like a person. This one was really uh, good when it came to fertility and this one was really good when it came to warfare and this one was really good as it came to commerce. 
And so all these ancient gods had different skill sets and abilities, and they had different rankings, cosmic, national, city, clan, ancestral gods. So there was often to, 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 to meet people who would say, well, I'm monotheistic, meaning I only believe in one God. That was kind of off the radar for people because you had to be committed to several kinds of gods. And there had to be several different kinds of shrines in a village because you didn't want, you needed to solicit the help of the God of agriculture and the God of uh, safe childbirth and all, all manner of things. So there were lots of gods who were connected to certain spheres of influence and a hierarchy of gods and all of them together kind of formed a, a godlike soup pantheon, just like society. Just like there's different people in society that kind of do different things and it all works out together. These gods kind of did the same as they were in relationship to people. Number four, manifestation of deity. This is probably going to be the most obvious clue in terms of Genesis 1. Ancient people believed the most important manifestation, meaning the most exp- important physical expression of the deity was an idol. But in a lot of ancient writings, they didn't call them idols, they called them images. So an image was a physical representation of a god. And these are very important. They were often made of the finest materials and they were infused with um, a kind of a ritualistic, um, they were infused to be a conduit of the divine presence through particular rituals. And so when Shrines are built, temples are built, or uh, even just uh, little worship spaces are set up in homes. Images or idols become the place that has a conduit to the presence of the God, and they become very, very important. It's energized with divine presence, and therefore it's not the God or the gods themselves, but it is a very unique kind of conduit whereby the attributes and character of that god can move into and touch the lives of you as an individual, your family, your clan, your tribe, your city. Another thing to keep in mind as we move through the early chapters of Genesis is that while we think of the world in terms of maybe natural and supernatural, we tend to separate those two categories in very, very distinct ways. You know, we sometimes think of the heavens and the earth, heaven where God is. Sometimes we think it's very up, up, far away. And then there's material reality here. The ancients didn't see really much of anything as being strictly natural in the way that we do. They saw behind everything that happens an overlap between what we would consider the natural world and supernatural forces. That's why, in general, the Old Testament doesn't talk about miracles, because miracles infers that there's kind of normal, natural processes in play, and then God interrupts them with a miracle. What does the Old Testament talk about? What's the language? Signs and wonders. Meaning that God, let's say in the Old Testament, is doing these things. He's moving history forward. He's at work in the world, but then he does a particular sign. And what that is trying to communicate is that it's not like God showed up and did the miracle, and then when you don't see the miracle, he's not there. He's like off in like a different corner of the universe. Signs and wonders tries to underscore this fact that God is close. And that's the way ancient people thought in general. 
yeah, there were very strikingly interesting things that happened. But people didn't think of them as miracles in the sense of a, um, an interruption. They saw it as a different kind of thing that the gods were doing that humans were able to see. And lastly, and this is really fascinating and really, really important, especially for Genesis chapter 1, uh, 2 as well, but definitely 1. And so this will come up again and again. Ancient people think about the relationship between creation and things coming into order very differently than we do. Now, what do I mean by that? When we think of something being created, we think of something that wasn't becoming something that is. Non-existence to existence. Ancient people, and this absolutely informs the first chapter of Genesis, ancients thought of creation in functional terms, not in mechanical terms. That's how we think of it. We think of it in mechanical terms. There was nothing, and then there was something. Ancients thought of creation in functional terms, meaning this. When something takes on purpose, when something takes on order from a s order and focus, from a state of just kind of being like, undirected, it's in that moment that something is created. So you'll see in the early chapters, the early verses of Genesis, right? God's creating, but his creation starts as he hovers over the waters. This undifferentiation of massive, undirected nothingness. And then he says, let there be light. But what does God call the light? He calls it good, but initially when he says, and he called the light day. Because God doesn't think of things mechanically. He doesn't call the light light and the dark dark. He calls the light day and the dark night. Why? Because of what it does, what its function is. Now that's important because that's going to set up through the rest of the Bible the significance of why God names things and why God names you. Because when you are given a new name, when you are named, that means you have a new purpose and a new identity and a God-given one. And you are being recreated. That's a theme that's going to come up in the life of ministry of Jesus again and again and again. Comes up in the New Testament. It's why the Eastern Orthodox Church, when you get baptized, you are given a Christian name in addition to the name that you were um, given by your parents. It all comes from this idea that in the ancient world, to create something is to name it and to give it purpose. And so the idea of, and the concept of taking things that are um, directionless and functionless and out of order and making them and and, um, adhering them to a agenda and to a destiny, that is creation from an ancient worldview. A cow isn't a cow simply because it has four legs and it has this pattern on it and it has, you don't pick out all the different bits and pieces. The cow is a cow because it gives milk, because it provides meat. So what something does, how it functions in the world is very, very significant. 
to an ancient uh, way of thinking. Now again, we're going to leave that there today. We're going to move forward. I'm going to keep picking this up and layering it because as you move through the early chapters of Genesis, all of those things will become really important. And if you can even keep one or two of those in mind, then certain passages will really pop with significance, not only in terms of just getting what they mean, but also being able to apply them to you as a person. Because without this understanding, if if we don't begin to see and hold together some of these patterns and themes of how ancient people thought, trying to think a little bit more like that so that we can understand Genesis better, a lot of the treasures of Genesis 1 to 11 are going to be lost on us. And we're going to get sidetracked in ways that just aren't really, really helpful. And when you do have this understanding, then these first 11 chapters really become very, very relevant, explosively interesting, monumentally challenging, very provocative at every level of analysis, individuals, couples, families, societies, culture, philosophy. And it also becomes powerfully faith-building. There's a whole segment of theology called apologetics, which is trying to establish and prove that the Bible is God's word and that Christian faith is reasonable and it's a good idea to, to, to line up with it. Most people would not lead another person interested in wanting you to prove that. How, how do we know the Bible is God's word? Most people are not going to lead people through Genesis 1 to 11 to establish that. But that's super, super dumb. Because if you understand and are led through Genesis 1 to 11 properly, you are not going to uh, dismiss it as simplistic. And I honestly, I'm not sure how you could dismiss it as simply a human document that emerged somehow through a collection and process of writings that gets evolved over a certain amount of centuries. It's impossible to do it. At the end of the series, your faith in God's word will be tenfold, I just guarantee it. So track with the series, because it's really, really gonna be important. These first 11 chapters are texts unlike any other. And the better we understand them, the more we'll understand the Bible, the more relevant and exciting the Bible's second half is gonna become, especially Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. Let's pray. God, we're just starting here this morning. And we want to submit ourselves to our need for you. Holy Spirit, we want you to guide us into all truth. These first 11 chapters, God, over these next few months, would you show us, reveal your glory, reveal yourself in and through these texts. And not just as an intellectual exercise, God, but in a way that causes our worship of you to deepen, our prayerful dependence on you to increase, our desire to serve you in our everyday lives, to just go off the charts, our desire to get into the Bible more is strengthened and deepened. God, may this be a series that uh, challenges and wakes us all up in the ways that we need. We love you. I commit this series to you and just ask that um, we would do the work necessary to mine these treasures and that your word would produce a powerful fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.